You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Hey crew, this is Mark Hattenmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Today, let's make an old school and scientific case against what? Shadow boxing. Anti-shadow boxing? Are you kidding me? Uh, we'll call this part one. We're going to cover the uh, historical and some of the uh, perhaps cultural or social psychology uh, evidence for it, which is likely not enough to clinch your argument. And then in part two, we will go into uh, some of the uh, scientific background for it. Now, first off, anti-shadow box, you got to be thinking, come on, man, shadow boxing is a hallowed part of old school training. You can't be serious. I mean, I hear you, but allow me to double down. Shadow boxing and all other non-contact work that is meant to simulate fighting, we're talking kata, young forms, etc., fit into this category warning as well. Now, listen, I know that sounds blasphemous, so let's jump in and build the case against, and then you can do your own evidentiary evaluation afterwards. I will say, the deeper the archaeology took me, uh, well, I wound up giving up this protocol that has been a staple of my own training for literal decades. Okay, now first, a little bit of history. Little mention is made of shadow work being a large part of a boxer's stable work uh, prior to the turn of the last century. Oh, there are mentions of it, more than a few, quote, made a flash of the hands, unquote, to impress, quote, coves at ringside, unquote. But being a cornerstone of the training, there's much, uh, there's little ado is made about this. It's more, you know, you know, actually hitting things. It's going to be your bad work. It's going to be moving. It's actual conditioning and not just, uh, you know, swinging at the air. All right. Now I'm with you. Little mention of the record it does not a convincing case make. It doesn't mean it wasn't done. It could be something with so obvious on his face. There's no point in mentioning it. Yet, whenever you read these early accounts of training, uh, there's, uh, there's such remarkable detail. They're mentioning so many things. You're going, why would anyone care about this? And yeah, you're going, well, where's the shadow boxing in here? So stick with me. Why the possible rise of shadow boxing from the 1900s forward? Well, there's likely two possible answers here. Number one would be the rise of the open gym. So as boxing gained in popularity and became more than a fringe scrum of the scurvy element of society with the occasional dabbling by gentlemen and exclusive clubs that catered to the deep-pocketed, we see the advent of open gyms that could accommodate a larger cadre of fighters and wannabe fighters. In the less well-equipped gyms, frequented by the unwashed masses with no gentleman patrons to keep all spick and span and wonderfully geared, and gyms became a bit of an assembly line. With only so many bags to go around or so many uh, pad figures, there is only so many sparring partners or available room for sparring. So you might hear, hey, uh, you, kid, go throw your hands in the corner for a while until something opens up. This starts to become more common. It's akin to the, uh, you guys warm up, I'll be with you in a few, offered by many a personal trainer who is really slacking clients on their billable hour. Now, prior to the turn of the last century, hitting and making contact with something was considered the touchstone of training, as one would wisely imagine. Uh, think of it if we had football practice and uh, we just said, go air tackle for a while. I mean, you got to have contact to contact sports, so you got to have contact. Uh, gentleman Jim Corbett made more than a few remarks on this uh, difference himself, recognizing that his own power and was indeed different from the old-timers that had something of the mighty oak in what they swung. That's a, that's a quote for him. Now, we can kind of see this a bit today. When we see uh, any martial art that first hits the scene in its pure or mean or hard and gritty form, and then it gradually makes its uh, transfers. 
we can think of uh, the World War II veterans who are coming back from Okinawa with the earlier hard styles of uh, karate. And we are seeing them. These gyms were hard and, you know, frankly, badass. And then as time progressed and we open up strip mall gyms. And again, this isn't at all. I'm not casting aspersions here. But we see many that just start catering to uh, people who want a softer element. We can't show up to work with the black eye or the bloody nose if we're putting our four-year-olds in there. we got to have a different a mode of operation. So that's where you get this rank and file lineup, everybody. Let's hit the air for wild kids. And then uh, we all progress to get our belts, and we're all pretty happy about it. Uh, similar things sort of somewhat happened with, uh, you can see it in BJJ. We know it comes in hard and evil and uh, with all the scrum, that's, which it is still in many cases. But whenever you first start out, early uh, grappling gyms were always things of uh, dank, dark sweat and hard work. And now that obviously those still exist, but there's many cases where that has been watered down and, and there are different breeds of animals. So the same thing to some degree is happening in the analogy in the early days of uh, boxing as well. Uh, you have uh, changing clientele rolling over a bit. Some people don't want to get hit as hard or play as hard. In some cases, there's just enough gear to go around. So you start coming up with these interesting ways to uh, keep people paying you money. And uh, whenever you don't want to buy more bags, you don't have enough people to hold pads for. Now, let's get back to possible number two reason this started rising up. We have the press photographer. As photographic technology improved and it became increasingly easy to allow for photographs to be printed in newspapers, publishers and readers became hungrier for visual content. Okay, and this is time before motion pictures really be able to take fights. We don't have fights on television, so early cameras were not the easily wielded shoot infinity images and color to the best 3300 we have today. Shots had to be lucky or posed or somewhat staged to get something that goes over with the public eye, something that the editor would want to put into uh, the newspaper. So a press photographer had no problem asking, hey, Duke, step out from behind the bag where I can see you now. Now throw some punches in the air. Perfect. See, the photos of the air fighter are then seen by many an aspiring pugilist, and they assume, well, that's part of it. I can punch the air, too. And then they go to work self-training, perpetuating what may have just been a bit of a make-work task for busy gyms or hairy trainers and or fake fodder for the hungry media. You might be thinking, okay, Mark, that's neat speculation, but I'm still not convinced it's, it's a practice that needs to be dropped from the roster. I think you're making a bit much of some historical scraps. Okay, good on you. I mean, it's good thinking. I mean, it's everything I've presented so far, it's not enough uh, to squash uh, doing uh, shadow boxing or any sort of solo work. Now, what is presented thus far is insufficient, woefully insufficient, but I purposefully weighted the least of the arguments to the fore. Now, let's proceed to argument number two, self-injury. Recall that prior to the 1900s, most strikers prepared for striking by actually striking something. Many an old school uh, trainer preserved this spirit through the early 40s. Striking allows for full 100% skill development with pro positive transfers for maximum training effect. I don't think anyone's got any argument against that. So bag work, pad work, you know, in the bag work, I don't care if it's double in or, you know, speed bags, a little bit of an argument against that, but speed bags, heavy bags, maze bags, whatever, anything that allows you to actually do what you're going to be doing in your sport, positive transfer, 100%. Now, shadow boxing, no matter how speedy, cannot build the power component. Yes, it can educate speed, but so does striking a, a bag, a pad, a partner, and these impacts allow the co-education of skills of power and speed. Shadow boxing only strives for the speed aspect. Speed is good, but speed and power is better. So if we only have 45 minutes to train, should we opt for a training mode that drills one aspect or both? Again, it's back to economic theory, it's opportunity cost. Everything I choose, uh, if I choose one mode of training, 
everything else is off the table. And if I say, well, I'll do this mode of training, then this mode, then this mode, again, we've got to keep in mind only so many training hours a day. We should always be optimizing, in a sense, picking the most efficient, the most effective, and heavily weighting that, and perhaps call the things to provide less dividends on it. Now, you may say, Mark, I have unlimited time to train, which lucky for you if that's the case. And uh, Mark, I could also shadow box and hit pads to maximize my development. And again, the argument sounds good, but with unlimited time at your disposal, why not throw all the chips into the pot, right? Well, for shadow boxing to be effective and the parameters we desire, speed, we have to throw with maximum intent, and that maximum intent may have a price to be paid. Punching full bore without contact means the deceleration and stabilizing forces of the negative aspect of the punch, any airstrike at all, could be a kick, we're merely addressing punching here, these must be handled by the rotator cuff, all right? So when we're doing uh, shadow boxing, even no matter how hard we're throwing, how fast we're throwing, we are purposely decelerating, all right? You're educating yourself to pull because that's what you have to do to stop bringing yourself off base and blow off bounce and stop uh, self-injury. For many long-term hard charges in boxing, shoulder pain often manifests. It is often a low-grade pain that one does not pinpoint root causes. Now, physiologists, to wear the forces on the rotator cuff, suspected they suspected tears, all right? But upon examination, the suspicions proved negative. But the deceleration and stabilizing put overload stresses on the infraspinatus and teres major. These stresses wound up being the sources of the pain. The athletes were instructed to drop shadow boxing from the regimen, and these non-rotator tear, inj rotator, uh, cuff tear injuries, they simply go away. So thus far, we see a possible historical quirk as to why shadow boxing found a place for itself in the modern boxing training regimen. We also see that this no-impact practice can wind up having a negative impact on our progress if we're playing with the intent necessary for realistic combat training. Now, you might be asking, is that all there is to the negative case? Well, before I answer that, some will reason, well, Mark, I can still use shadow boxing at a lower intensity to groove proper form, and this lower intensity will bypass injury. I repeat, is that all there is to the negative case? No, it is not all there is to the case, and the offered solution of lower intensity and grooving form just might be the worst form of shadow boxing. Now think about this. The in the weeds science says uh, on this was handed up with two words already mentioned. All right, we'll get to that later. But think about this. If we're trying to educate speed and then we say, well, I can't throw with full intensity on my shadow boxing. I know there's a possibility for injury and I'm also training myself to decelerate. So I'll just slow it down a little bit. And then you're back to going, well, where's the speed component come in anymore? So we're, we're arguing into a hole here. Now, in part two, we'll get even heavier into the science, and we'll also, uh, there's some very good science that a lot of money was thrown at it, and obviously, it comes, uh, strangely, it comes not from boxing. It comes from another uh, sport that has even more money in it, and I wager you might find, uh, if you not find these arguments convincing or just on the edge, they'll be even more so. And that particular one will not be a podcast. It will be part of our free uh, newsletter. If you want to go, hey, well, where's this free newsletter, right? Well, you can, uh, you know, go, uh, I'll put it down here in the show description, the, the link to that, if you're interested and you can pick up have a read of that and see if you're convinced and go from there anyway take care of yourself crew uh, have a good one well if you dig what we just discussed today uh, i'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast hell support it if you want i'm not your dad do what you want and if you're a glutton for punishment, uh, just visit our website, ExtremeSelfProtection.com. You'll find links to the blog, all of our products, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. <laughs>